The staff has been after me through this entire series to strut up to that music. Uh, and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, this is our last one. You know, I committed uh, to not tell a Super Bowl joke this year, right? But I just can't help myself. Um, what do you call 50 grown men watching the Super Bowl? The Detroit Lions. <laughs> uh, oh, bless them, I know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, I, I was pulling for Detroit. If you're a Detroit fan, I, I, re, I, think, ever, I think the whole world was, right? Uh, and, and hey, there's 28, nine other teams that, that are doing the same thing. They're watching it on the screen like us as well. Uh, but they're a little bit unique right? in, in this way. In the 58 years of the Super Bowl, right, there's only four teams that have never gone. I'd never gone to the dance at all, not meaning that they'd won it, but at least been there, right? Attempted to win the Super Bowl, been to the final dance. Of those four teams, only two of them have had every opportunity. That means that they have been in existence since 1967, the first Super Bowl, and that is the Detroit Lions and the Cleveland Browns. But the Lions... They were on the cusp of shedding that uh, unwanted honor of distinction just a couple weeks ago. I know many of you probably watched the game, and uh, they, they were there, and, and they had it, and, and they were pushing forward. In fact, they were handedly leading the San Francisco 49ers at the half by 17 points, 24 to 7. And yet, they would go on to lose the game by three points, 34-31. All the commentators, coaches, and everything else kind of had that, that, that similar take on, on what happened. How, how did it fall apart? They were doing so good for, for, for the whole first half. It was like a different team was on the field in the second half. And, and many people believe that they simply just lost their sense of urgency. They started trying to protect what they had, their lead, instead of being focused on their mission, their goal. And that was to make it to the Super Bowl. We know in this Connection series, uh, we've been looking at, at our mission as a church. Uh, I have challenged us uh, each and every week that, that we, not only as a church body, but individually as believers, would be mission-minded and understand what we're called to do as believers. And in fact, week one, uh, we looked at this mission in this way where, where Peter came to understand that mission over tradition Right, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, but a Jewish believer, his eyes were open to the fact that the gospel was for everyone. Not only those who looked like him or acted like him or, or did the things that, that, that he does and that the Jewish, uh, all Jewish believers did, but for everyone. And so mission was over tradition. Week two then, we saw Jesus' beautiful prayer before uh, he knew he was about to, to leave this world and return to his Father in heaven. And, and in that prayer, he said, Father, I know that I'm about to come to you, come home to you. He said, but, but keep them here. Keep the disciples, the believers here on this earth. Why? Because they have a mission to do. And it was in that prayer that, that he said that believers are sanctified to be sent sanctified to be sent out on mission. We looked further where, where Paul got a good grasp of this, and, and he, come to un, he came to understand as a believer that, uh, that, that he would do whatever it takes to fulfill his mission to share the gospel. Whatever that meant, if it meant that he would face persecution, he would do it. If it meant that he had to, to, to go and be with people that he didn't normally associate with, he would do that. If he had to, to change things about himself in order to engage with people of, of other communities and, and ethnicities, that he would do that, whatever it takes to fulfill his mission. 
Week three then, we saw where uh, Jesus was mission-minded. It was that time where he, he met the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, and, and here, this, this woman who uh, the, was a Samaritan who most people, certainly Jews, would, would avoid in the first place, and yet he, Jesus went in and, and engaged with her, shared the gospel message with her. She, she received that message and became a believer, and, and not only that, became one of the, the greatest evangelists that we see in the New Testament because she went back to her hometown and told everybody about what had happened. Now, here this multiple divorcee, a woman with a bad reputation who even her own people had shunned, and yet Jesus engaged this Samaritan woman. She went back and told her community, and it says that nearly everyone came back out, and they also believed because of the transformation they had seen in her life, and then when she brought them to Jesus, what they came to understand about him. Week four then, I had Dr. Hernandez here who, who, who shared in a continuing way Jesus' mission as, as he proclaimed his deity and the mission that he was sent for and passes to us. Last week then, week five, we looked at the great parables, three parables in particular of Jesus where he was sharing to, to believers, to us today, what our mission is, what the mission of the church is. And it's simply this, to pursue the lost and then celebrate their salvation. That's what we're called to do, pursue the lost and celebrate their salvation. Well, today then, as we conclude this series, I want to ask us, I want us to ask ourselves a question, and that is this, are we mission-minded? Better yet, ask yourself the question, am I mission-minded? Northside's Constitution and Bylaws uh, states this for our mission. I'll pull it up on the screen as I read. Our mission, in obedience to our Lord's great commission, we believe that our priority is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible in our community and throughout the world. Simply put, in our logo and motto that we are to share and show the good news of Jesus with everyone. Sharing and showing with, with our lips and our lives, that we tell people about Christ and we let people see Christ in us and through all that we do as we engage our community and our world. As I was thinking about the mission of the church and how we kind of uh, land this plane in, the, in this series, if you will, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, what I believe is one of the greatest mission statement stories, certainly in my lifetime. Right? Some of you may recall this more in this service than the second for sure, but it's known as the Tylenol Crisis of 1982. Right? Tylenol is the brand name of a medication, acetaminophen. And in October of 1982, Tylenol, who was the leading pain uh, medicine at that time, at least over the counter in the U.S., faced a tremendous crisis when seven people in Chicago were found dead, dead after taking their capsules. See, an unknown suspect had put 65 milligrams of cyanide into Tylenol capsules randomly, which is far more than enough to kill a human. The suspect would, would take the, the bottles off the shelf, open them up, and uh, lace them or poison them with the cyanide, and then simply return them back to the shelves. Now, at that time, Tylenol controlled 35%, 35% of the entire market for that market. Immediately after these poisonings, their market share was reduced to 7%. Immediately, overnight. 
And once the, con- the connection was made between Tylenol capsules and those reported deaths, you, you may recall, man, all the uh, public announcements that were going out uh, on the news, on TV, uh, uh, on the radio, every, warning everybody about the deaths associated with these Tylenol capsules. Well, Johnson & Johnson was faced with an incredible dilemma, right? I mean, my goodness, I, with all this going out, how do they deal with the problem without destroying the company and certainly its most profitable product, Tylenol. What does Johnson & Johnson do? So they turn to their mission statement. Tylenol chairman Robert uh, Robert Wood Johnson said this. In 1943, he made this statement. The values that guide our decision-making are spelled out in our credo. Simply put, our credo challenges us to put the needs of well-being people excuse me, the needs and well-being of the people we serve first. So following this principle of putting people first and property second, they did the unthinkable. They immediately uh, conducted a a product recall of all the Tylenol products off the shelf. It said that about 31 million bottles were removed from the shelf. That equated to more than $100 million in loss in an instant. Overnight, $100 million in in, in 1982. That's a lot of money today. It was certainly a lot then. Now, they knew they they weren't to blame. They weren't responsible for the tampering of the product. They they, they understood that, but they still assumed full responsibility by doing what their mission statement said, and that is putting the public safety first. So what happened next in Tylenol? Well, it was reintroduced. We got that nice uh, uh, foil seal that we all hate to take off now. That, that was a product or a result of this tampering. And so they, they, they reinstituted uh, it with, with that tamper seal resistant packaging. They, they changed from, from capsules to, to caplets, which uh, are far uh, more protected from any kind of tampering. And it was placed back on the shelf, and people knew they could trust the company because they had made the right choice to put people first. Now, after losing all that market share and $100 million overnight, within one year, they were more successful than ever before. Why? Because they focused on their mission. They put their mission first. They asked themselves, in the face of an incredible crisis, they said, what are we here for? Why was the company founded? Mission first. Folks, I believe the church today has a mission crisis. I do. Now, understand when we say church, I'm not saying just Northside specifically, church with a capital C. All church, all evangelical churches, all believers, remember you are the church, right? It's not sticks and bricks. It's not these walls. It's not buildings. uh, The people, you are the church. And I believe the, the church has a mission crisis where the mission that we were given by the Lord Jesus Christ has become secondary to everything else. Secondary even to to ministries in the church. Uh, Secondary uh, in our personal lives, uh, how we we interact with people or or how we really want to live our lives. We've placed it second to so much. You may recall I I shared this passage, Paul, when he was uh, talking to Timothy and and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he said this, God our Savior wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. He said, listen, Timothy, the heart of God is this. He wants everyone. You you always say, people say, well, well, why would God send anyone to hell? He doesn't. 
The heart of God is that everyone would be saved. We choose that when we abandon His ways, when we deny who Christ is, when we choose not to receive the free salvation that He gives to us. And Paul said, Timothy, don't forget, this is our mission, mission first. Every, God wants everyone to be saved, so we have to, to do that work. We, we have to go out and we have to witness and we have to win people to the Lord, and then they'll come to the knowledge of the truth. See, I think sometimes in the church, we, we get that backwards. And the truth should be part of, of how we evangelize. Without a doubt, as we, we share the gospel, we share God's truth. But sometimes I think we almost want people to, you get right, you get your life straight, you get everything all buttoned up and all that, you know, just as, as perfect as the world can see it, and then we'll let you come to church. You know, then when you're really walking right with God, well, well then you can receive salvation. And he says, don't, don't buy that. Timothy, understand this. First, you got to get them saved. You got to catch the fish before you clean the fish. Amen. Go out there and witness to somebody. Win someone to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit do a work in their lives with the truth of the word. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, he, he told him this too. He's, he, he, remember, he's talking to a future pastor uh, uh, that, that, that is going to be taking over the, the, the helm, if you will. Paul knows his, his life is short. And he says, Timothy, there's going to be all kinds of things for you to focus on, all kinds of things to do in the ministry. But in 2 Timothy 4 5, he says this, but don't neglect this. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Timothy, if you don't do anything else, you go win somebody to Jesus. Northside, if we don't do anything else, if we don't build anything else, if we don't start any more programs, if we don't do anything else in our community, win someone to Jesus. That's what he says. That, that, that's why church exists, to, to win the lost to Christ. And so what I've challenged us all with this uh, over these six weeks is to have these connection conversations. You have people already in your life that you're connected to in special ways. How are you using that for the kingdom to, to, to witness and to share with others? And I encourage you, talk to people. Just, just ask them, man, what do you think about God? What do you think about the Bible? What do you think about eternity? You ever thought about when you die? What's going to happen? And then the most difficult thing on the planet for you to do, but do it, listen. Just listen. Let, let, let them talk. Let them loose. Maybe, they, maybe they've got an understanding. Maybe they don't. But if you'll listen long enough, then they're going to ask you, what, what do you believe? And, and that's your opportunity then to, to share them not only what you believe, but what you know. See, don't tell them like it is. That's sometimes, you know, Christian, we, we get all high and mighty. I'm going to tell you, you sinner, this is what you've got to do. I'm going to tell you how it is. Don't tell them how it is. Tell them how it can be. You hear me? This is what Christ has done in my life. Hey, I know, I, I was where you are, or, or maybe you weren't, but listen, I'm a sinner too. I still struggle with that, but I want to tell you, that's not who I am. I'm a new creation in Christ. Tell them how it can be for them. Did some research this week. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention says that suicide in the United States in the year 2022, that's the uh, most complete uh, uh, report that they have, Statistics. In 2022, suicide in the United States hit another all-time high. 49,449 people in the U.S. reported took their own lives. That's one every 10 minutes. In the hour that we're going to meet together for this worship service, 10 people in our world are going to take their own lives.
We live in a hopeless world. Watch the news, look around, talk to some other people, and you'll get it. People are, are without hope anymore. And yet here we are as ambassadors of hope. A message of, of absolute hope to everyone. One of my favorite stories, I've shared this years ago here at the church, but it's so good I want to share it again. Uh, back in the turn of the century, 1900, all right? Uh, back in 1900, there was a shoe company here in the U.S., and they were wanting to expand um, their, their sales, right? They, they, they were one of the leading companies here in America, but they uh, wanted to do even more. And so they decided, listen, uh, we need to take it outside of the country. So they decided they were going to uh, try Africa. And so they, uh, they, they get their best salesman and they tell them, hey, here's what we want to do. We want to expand this. We're going to send you to Africa. So they, they loaded them up on a boat because that's how you traveled back then. It would take uh, days and sometimes even weeks to travel by boat to different places. And so he loads up all the shoes they can get and all the cargo for this boat, and uh, he, he, he boards the boat like everyone else, and, and they take the journey to Africa. When I, back then, you didn't have telephones, certainly not cell phones or anything like that, so it, it may be uh, days, weeks before you would ever be able to communicate again, and even then through telegraph. And so he, he goes to Africa, and the company is waiting, and a couple weeks go by, not a word, a couple more weeks go by, and finally they get a telegraph. And the salesman says this, send ticket to come home. No one here wears shoes. So they sent him a, a ticket. He, he loaded all the shoes back up on the boat, and he sailed back to America. A few years go by, and uh, the financial people at the company said, well, we've really got to expand ourselves. We, I think we need to do this again. So they got another salesman. Same story, loaded him up on the boat. He, he loads up all the shoes that, that, that they could get in the cargo portion for his ticket. He sets sail. He lands in Africa. The company's waiting again. A few weeks go by, nothing. A few more weeks go by, still nothing. And then another week, and they, they get the telegram that they're all waiting for. But this time it said this, send more shoes. No one here wears shoes. Both men had the same product. Both men went to the exact same place, but they saw it completely different. One looked at it and said, nobody here wears, wears shoes. They don't need what I have. The other man says, no one here wears shoes. Everyone needs what I have. Folks, we live in a hopeless world. Everyone needs what you have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only difference is, is how we see our world and then what we're going to do to achieve the mission that God has given us to evangelize all of it. Let's dive in this morning. I want us to close out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've looked at this repeatedly. In fact, we ought to preach this, ought to preach this passage every month. Uh, I don't think we could ever do it justice. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you can open your Bibles or, or, or open your app this morning. All the verses are there. This, I, I say repeatedly, is, is the key verse to the entire book of Acts. It's found here in verse 8. Jesus says this before he leaves the disciples and the believers who were gathered. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here's what Jesus says but, but before he leaves. He, he says, listen, you're going to be empowered to be on mission. 
right? Jesus, who had provided everything for them. Man, when times got tough, this is the joker that can walk on water. This is the one that can take uh, a ham sandwich and then feed a village, right? Uh, this is the one who could raise people from the dead. Hey, if you were missing a hand, that's cool. He'd give you a new one, right? And he was leaving. He said, but I want you to understand, you're going to have an even greater power when I leave. That, that word power that's used here, the, the Greek word dynamis, it's where we get our word dynamite. Right? It, it, it's that kind of power. When, when something is immovable, now I grew up in the country, right? And in and, and your streams and creeks and even the rivers, sometimes the, the beavers would get in there and they'd build these dams. And man, they lock that stuff in. And when the current uh, hits it, it just ties it in even tighter. You can't get them out. The only way you can get a, a beaver dam out is you, you literally stick dynamite in that thing and boom, blow it up, right? Everybody in this room can relate to this. We live in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We all have one thing in common. We all live on the same rock, right? There is just one giant rock in Murfreesboro. And every time there's a subdivision, like we're seeing across the street right now, they go in. And what's one of the first things you hear? Bum, 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 bum. Those big jackhammers, right? Just trying to knock through. And then eventually you'll see the drills come out because they realize we can't get through this. They drill down, they put in the dynamite, boom, right? You feel the shake wherever you are. Jesus said, that's the kind of power you're going to have. In the Holy Spirit. Now, this was not unique just to them. Right? Understand, every believer receives the Holy Spirit. When you pray to receive Christ, in that moment, you receive the Holy Spirit. And unlike what some people might tell you or you may see on TV, you get a full dose of the Holy Ghost in that moment. There is nothing coming later, nothing else you have to achieve. You, you receive the Holy Spirit. Look what he says there. Jesus says, you will receive this power. But hey, just like spiritual gifts, everybody has a spiritual gift. The only difference is some people uh, actually um, seek them out. They, they discover their, their spiritual gifts and they exercise them. Well, the same is true for the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. It's just a matter of whether or not you allow God to exercise it through you. Will we do it? It's there. We just got to choose to to lean in to the power that we already have. But he says this, that you're empowered, though, for a mission. That mission is to be a witness. Did you see that? You will receive power, and you will be my witness. It wasn't an option. A witness is simply someone who, who tells uh, others, tells people what he or she has seen uh, or experienced. That's what a witness is, right? I mean, a witness in court is simply called to what? To testify to testify to their experience, to testify to, to what they know. He says that that's what we're called to do as believers. If you're saved, you're called to be a witness, period, to, to testify about what you've experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, this wasn't just for the disciples. It's not a command today only for missionaries or, or preachers or pastors. He says, you. Go ahead, when you read that, put your name in that blank. Put your name in there. David will receive power. David will be my witness. Keith will be my witness. Christy will be my witness. Crystal will be, put your name in the blank. We all are called to be a witness. Charles Spurgeon, great quote, he says this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Only question is, which one are you? Every believer is called to be a missionary. He goes on then and lays out that strategy to accomplish this incredible mission. 
He says, you're going to be my, my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and literally to the ends of the earth. That, that picture of that ripple effect, you, know, you throw a rock into a pond and it, and it keeps going out and going out until eventually the, 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 the ripple or the wave hits every bank on the pond. He says, that's what it's like. I want you to start in Jerusalem. He's saying, start with those, those connections you already have, those connections to those closest to you, those connections in your hometown. Friends, evangelism begins at home. You find it in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. John, the disciple, was writing this. The next day, John, not speaking of himself, but John the Baptist, was standing with two of the disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, John the Baptist said this, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. In verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John and, and followed him, talking about Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. Andrew came to know who Jesus was and immediately ran home, went and told his brother. He, he went home first. And then not only did he tell him about Jesus, but notice as he brought him to Jesus. There's another great story. It's found in Mark chapter 8. It's when Jesus was in a town called Bethsaida. He was there, and there was a blind man who had asked for a healing, and Jesus heals the blind man. And in verse 26, he says this. Then he, talking about Jesus, sent him home, saying, don't even go to the village. Jesus said, don't tell anyone until you go home. Now, why would Jesus say that? It seems like it worked out pretty good for the Samaritan woman to go tell everybody about Jesus. Why, why here? Because what you have to understand that the people of Bethsaida, they had, uh, they had witnessed other miracles by Jesus. In fact, three of the disciples were called from that very town. And yet, most of the people in that town didn't believe in Jesus. So he says, so since they're choosing not to believe, then go home. Go home to that place where they will believe. Go home to that place where the people know you the most, where they're going to see that transformation in your life, he says, go to where the people already know you. That, that's true for us today too. Take the gospel home first. It begins in the home. And he says, but not only that, after you go to Jerusalem, then we're going to go to Judea. Judea is the, the region surrounding the, the, the city of Jerusalem there. And he's talking about the, the connections you have that are just beyond your hometown. You know those connections we have that, uh, that, that's beyond that. Isaiah 49.6, the prophet, God says this to Isaiah and through Isaiah for us. It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I'll also make you a great light to all the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, in the Old Testament, and that's what they were fighting against in the New Testament, uh, the, 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 the Jewish people felt like salvation was only for them. We're reminded, no, the gospel is too big for that. It's not enough. Hey, hey it's great, but it's not enough to receive it for yourself. It's not even enough just to, to take it to your home. But after that, then take it beyond your home. It's Jerusalem, Judea, and, and even Samaria. Samaria, those, those difficult places, the forgotten people. He's telling us this, those intentional connections. When we take the gospel to someone who's not like us, maybe someone who doesn't look like us, doesn't act like us, maybe someone doesn't even like us, Maybe it's someone who, who, who wears a headdressing around their head. Maybe it's someone of a different a background or socioeconomic, whatever the case is. But be intentional to go to those places too. And then ultimately to the, to the ends of the earth. 
Now imagine being the disciples here in this. Hey, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Hey, you, you're talking about a task, right? No internet, no airplanes, no cell phones. How are we going to get there, Jesus? I say this often, never in all of history has a more important assignment been given to a more incapable group of people than the gospel to the disciples. Amen? To do this, to, to go and take the gospel to, to the ends of the earth. Fishers, carpenters, a tax collector. These men had never wandered beyond 100 miles from the place they were born. And yet, to the ends of the earth? But let me ask you this. What are we sitting here talking about today in Murfreesboro, Tennessee? They did it. How did they, did it by the, how did they do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. James didn't come here. Uh, 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 Simon didn't come here. John didn't come here. But they went to someone who went to someone who went to someone who went to someone who eventually came here. Friends, what's our excuse today? In the world we live in, with, with the drop of a hat, we can fly anywhere in the world we want to. We can communicate with anyone we want to. What, what's our excuse? We've got to be intentional with our mission. Our mission to carry out the Great Commission, to understand that we are mission first as a church and as a believer. Beginning in our homes, spreading throughout our communities, and literally to the ends of the earth. We can. We're without excuse. I'll wrap up, continuing on in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up. As they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now, you can imagine. Here are all these disciples and believers, and, they're like, and Jesus, hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. And just floats up in. I mean, are you kidding me? They had never seen anything like that. We've seen magic shows and stuff. Like that. It takes a lot to impress uh, uh, us today, right? Imagine disciples. In the year 34, let's say A.D., and a man just ascends, and then a cloud envelops him, and he's gone. And so, you, I mean, you speechless. And so what happens is that these two angels show up and rebuke them. And here's what the angels say. Hey, man, don't just stand around here gawking into the sky. Get out there. Get out there and do something. He told you what to do. Go do it. Too many Christians today. We're gawking. Amazed at our own salvation, which we should be. But paralyzed. By saying, I, I can't believe God would save me. And yet not willing to go and give that same opportunity to someone else. We've got to be mission first to take the gospel to everyone. You remember back where we started and Peter was called to share the gospel with the Gentile family, Cornelius' home? And I said then, the angel could have done it, but didn't. Why? Because that's our mission. That's what God gave to us, that we would go to every home and share the gospel. Close out with a story familiar to, to many of you. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Peter Fleming, and Ed McCauley. 
These are five men who were called to be missionaries. After surrendering to their call, going through training, securing funding, and leaving all their family, leaving, except they're close to their immediate family, leaving all the other family behind, selling all their possessions. After doing all this, these five men went to serve as missionaries to unreached people in Ecuador. And one day, while they were showing the love of Christ to a Waldani tribe, all five men, the youngest was 27, the oldest was 32, all five men were brutally killed with primitive handmade spears. One of the bodies was never recovered, and the ones that were, were it was just horrific how they were killed. Can I tell you something? That's not tragic. The person who paid off their house, retired early, lived to be a hundred, spent their final years with sound mind and body strolling on sandy beaches, peacefully died in their sleep, but did so without knowing Christ. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Your friends... Neighbors, co-workers, family who know you and yet die without knowing Christ as Savior. That's a tragedy. And that's a tragedy that as believers we should do everything in us to avoid. Everything we can do to be mission first. I want us to in this time, as we consider the, the mission that we're given, I want us to take time to prepare ourselves for, for communion, to come to the Lord's table. And I ask ourselves, are we on mission as much for others as Christ was for us? You know, this week's Valentine's Day, and there's, there's a lot of debate about how it started, but uh, likely, it, it goes back to Valentine, was a third century priest during the Roman Empire. Claudius was the Roman emperor at that time, and, and Claudius had this rule for all of his fighting men, for all the soldiers, that, that none of them could get married. Right? And he felt like uh, that, that, that would, they would have a divided heart if they did that, and so he wanted to keep them all single and disposable as well. But what happened is love conquers all, right? And some of these young men, they, they would fall in love with ladies, and they wanted to marry them. And so they would uh, go to them, but, but, but no priest would do it. And finally, this one priest, Valentine, he, he would do it. He began officiating the wedding ceremonies. When Claudius found out, he had Valentine beheaded for doing that. You know, as we think during this season of love, this Valentine's Day week, I, I believe that that is the greatest bond of love we know on earth, that, that, that covenant marriage, without a doubt. But there is a far greater love. There, there's a love that's eternal, and that's the love of our Savior Jesus Christ who paid it all for us. At this time, I want to call our deacons to, to come forward and take their place down front. As, as they do, I'll share some information with you on, on how we share communion. First of all, you're going to notice as, as the plates passed today, we have a new and different cup, okay? Hear me well. In the center, you'll see there are some servings that are gluten-free. Reserve those, please, for those who need that or require that, if at all possible. The outside are, are not. You'll take 
a single cup. In the bottom of it, under a tab, is the bread that we will serve together. The top, under that tab, is the juice. So when you receive that element, you can go ahead and prepare for our time to share together. Here at Northside, we uh, offer what we call close communion. Uh, for some churches, they have closed communion, meaning it's only uh, available and offered uh, to members of that church, that local congregation. Others have open communion, meaning it's just open to anyone and everyone as they see fit. We have close communion, meaning this, we believe that it is reserved for born-again believers in Jesus Christ, but that you have to determine whether you're a member of Northside or not, whether or not you will participate in this time based on your relationship with Christ. So we refer to it as close communion. As you receive your elements, you'll take the time to, to reflect on what Christ did for you and what he's called you to do in mission. And then even take opportunity to, to pray as, as we serve the entire congregation. With that said, as we, as we look to the table this morning, and as you'll look to your elements in just a moment, communion really is a picture of Jesus. We don't have a photograph. There, there, there was no rendering of him. We, we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like on earth. Uh, the, 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 what, the images we have are, are taken from, from the text that we have to the, to the best of man's ability, but we don't know. But Jesus doesn't want us to consider his appearance or his haircut. Or, when it came for Jesus to, to leave a picture of himself to us, he gave us this. He said, this is my body. This bread, this, this juice that you drink, and this is what I gave for you. And so when we receive it today, we not only remember the price he paid for us, but we also respond in how we'll be on mission for him. In Matthew chapter 26, it was the first day of unleavened bread, and the disciples came to Jesus to prepare all things. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after broke it, blessed it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them also, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my body, this is my blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for the many and the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom.